0: Welcome to episode 273 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was uploaded on Saturday, 8th of May, 2021.
1: The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash spokesman. Hey, everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesman.com. And now, here are the spokesmen.
0: This weekend, I've got two one-hour shows back to back, and both feature power couples. I'm Carlton Reed, and on tomorrow's show, I'll be sharing with you a great chat with husband and wife urbanist Chris and Melissa Bruntlett, speaking to me from different rooms in their fairy tale house in Delft. They've got a new book out in June, and they kindly went through it with me. I asked them how they divided the writing tasks, which is also a question I asked of today's guests, the august and influential Ralph Buhler and John Pooker from America. I classify them as a power couple because as an academic pairing, they write transport oriented papers and edit tub thumping books together. You may have read City Cycling from 2012. Well, now they've got a new book out called Cycling for Sustainable Cities. Ralph and John, I could read from your wonderful book. In fact, I've got it in front of me. Your new uh, wonderful book, Cycling for Sustainable Cities, another MIT um, tub thumper of a, a book. Uh, you, you, of course, had your 2012 uh, book, City Cycling, which was which is absolutely a classic. Uh, this is a new classic. So I've got the, the uh, page open, which tells me who you are. But rather than me read out your long job titles, could you please uh, tell the listeners who you are in your own words? So John first. Okay.
2: Um, I have been a hater of cars for my entire life <laughs> and that is what has actually motivated uh my entire academic career uh i started out doing research on uh so for my dissertation at uh, at mit as well uh so 45 years ago uh on public transit so the first 20 years of my career i spent uh working on uh, public transit, public transportation, uh, public transport, Uh, first in the United States, and then I added uh, Western Europe, and then I added Canada, and then I added Australia, and then I added Eastern Europe. (laughs) The only I sort of did, I was always in this, not always, but then is more and more international perspective. And then I spent um, uh, a two year sabbatical um, as a visiting professor at the University of Münster in Northern Germany, about an hour from the Dutch border. And that city has 40% of all trips by bike. And I had never ever even been to a city that had that high a percentage of bicycling and living in that, being surrounded in an environment where everyone is bicycling for every trip purpose. The mail was by bike. The police officers were by bike. uh, People in their 70s and 80s were on bike. Kids got to school by bike. I mean, everything was done by bike. And I just thought, I want to know how this is possible. I just can't believe it. I was just fascinated. And, um, and that really is what generated then my, um, uh, my interest in, in cycling uh, as, a, as a field that had been totally neglected. I mean, it really, there was almost no academic literature on cycling uh, way back then. And so, I have
0: picked, like, I have gone into your book and there there is some fascinating stats there about how, like, how many papers were published, you know, in, in this year compared to, you know, like a 14-fold, 18-fold increase. So I will get into that. But tell me your actual job title. What's on your business card, John?
2: I don't have a business card, but <laughs> I'm, I'm a professor emeritus uh, at Rutgers University uh, in central New Jersey. And I was a professor there. I retired uh, six years ago, but I, I, I've still been doing research. Uh, um, and I was there for 37 years as a professor of urban planning and public policy. So in, in I'm going to get to rough in a minute. In, in uh, the, the,
0: the preamble where it's talking about the uh, who you are, and you've told us a bit about that, it says, and this is, this is uh, John. So uh, John's particular passion is to make cycling possible for everyone, including all ages and abilities. Now, now of course, I, I would absolutely applaud and recommend and and think that's fantastic. But, uh, John, uh, aren't academics meant to be neutral? So how can you be anti-car? How can you be pro-bus, pro-bicycle when you're meant to be a neutral academic, just talking about the science?
2: Well, I think the science backs up my opinion. <laughs> That is, I mean, I I think, I think that scientists who claim to be totally objective are lying. (laughs) I think that uh, in the background they have certain hypotheses, certain beliefs. Uh, If a scientist is making ninety nine point nine percent of his or her trips uh, by car. And living way out in the suburbs and, and so forth, supporting that sort of a lifestyle—that is a statement in itself. And I think many scientists, supposedly objective, uh, were viewing the whole world through the windshield of a car, without ever even knowing that they were being very subjective. At least I'm honest and saying, "Look, uh, you know, I, 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 I experienced." These problems of, of car dependence, I'm surrounded by them. I experience them every day in so many different respects. And I mean, I'm not sure if that means I'm not. obviously no one, I don't think, is really neutral. But I think the most dangerous kind of a scientist is a scientist who pretends to be neutral and, in fact, is very biased because of their very lifestyle and the way they get around and what they assume implicitly. Hmm. Yeah,
0: I like that. Thank you, John. And then Ralph. So so Ralph, do you have a business card, first off? And what's on that business card? I, I have a business card, and what's on
3: that card is that I'm currently professor and chair of urban affairs and planning at, at Virginia Tech uh, on the Arlington campus.
0: So you Washington, DC, basically. You're you're just yes. across the river. right outside of DC. And Tell me some of your background, Ralph, because I can tell from your accent that y- y- you're not from uh, <laughs> Washington, D.C. No, no, I'm from Virginia. No. so um... yeah, that, It's his deep southern
3: accent. <laughs> yes. No. So um, originally, I, I'm from Germany. And my story is a little bit the opposite of, of John's story. So I studied um, public policy and administration in in Germany and went for a... Um, a student exchange to the. US to Rutgers actually where John was was a professor at the at the time and before that I had interest in transportation mainly in public transport but had not really thought about it as a s- subject for for study. I definitely biked for some trips I walked for others I rode public transport and, and I drove a car and then I came to the US for my study abroad and the experience in uh, central New Jersey was that, uh, without a car, it was very hard to get anywhere. Um, I, I tried to uh, ride my bike as much as possible. In fact, uh, the first day we arrived, um, it turned out we couldn't even get groceries without having a car. Uh, or, or so I got someone to give me a ride to a, a Walmart to buy a cheap bike, and then I rode back from that Walmart to uh, to where I lived, which was harrowing because there's there were no no infrastructure, nothing, no consideration for bicyclists at all in in that in that area, and then even getting to a to a grocery store was 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 harrowing and it was difficult. And so my interest was piqued in why are these transport systems so different? Uh, why is it normal for me growing up to ride a bike sometimes, to walk, to use public transport, Well, it was clearly not normal in the new place uh, I was? And then I of course also met John and. Um, we started research in
0: this in this area. I definitely want to get on to that. Um, so,
2: first of all, uh, John, is it Poocher or Puka?
1: It's Pooker. So it's,
2: okay. it's actually original. It's an Austrian name. It's originally pronounced Puker, but that's guttural and no one can pronounce it. So I just make it a so it's, it's Puker, as okay. if it were P O K E R. So so Puka and Bula
0: is is a kind of a now. Uh, a shorthand way in many academic papers for your, your various papers together. And you are, you know, like, you know, from a, you know, like a Morecambe and Wise uh, from a, from a UK perspective, you kind of like always together. So how did you get together?
2: Ralph was my, was, uh, I was the advisor uh, of Ralph when he was a German exchange student. He was first at Rutgers um, for one year uh, and then he went back to Germany to finish his, his, I guess you would call it undergraduate degree, which is more the equivalent of a master's in Germany. And then he decided to come back a year later uh, for the doctoral program. And I was his um, advisor for his doctoral program and for his dissertation as well. And his dissertation was uh, on a, a comparison of the United States and Germany. And of course, I was extremely interested in the topic at any rate. And then it's just one thing led to another, and we did. Uh, I think we had a research project on uh, comparing uh, cycling in Canada and the United States, and it's just. Then we just it just broadened, it broadened, and, and he, he had. I had already done a lot of international comparative research um, uh, between Western Europe and Canada and the United States, and then uh, Ralph came along, and that was his interest as well. And we just uh, our interest meshed exactly.
3: When when I got to the U.S., I was scheduled to study something like human resources management, um, but then I I saw that John was there in the School of Urban Planning, and it, it piqued my interest. And I thought for the for the study abroad year, I may as well switch to to urban planning. And I remember still I one of these these U.S. Um, phone booths it wasn't even a booth it was just a, a phone somewhere on the on the campus I called John's office and we talked and what he did was really interesting to me and was also my interest and then I switched programs within a week to to study urban planning and then from there I think because we both have this experience of living in different countries experiencing different transport systems and being interested in in sustainable transport and comparisons I think that really meshed well.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You see, Carlton, mm-hmm. you you probably recall our article, cycling is, is irresistible? Irresistible. Absolutely. Yes. Well, you see what Ralph was really saying that uh, I, I'm irresistible too. <laughs> 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 I'm just kidding.
0: No, no, no. Obviously it goes without saying. Um, <laughs> I, want, I want to stay with biographical stuff at the moment before we get into the the, the the meat of your, and it is a thick book. It's a good inch and a half thick uh, before mm-hmm. we get into, into your book. So Stick with the biographical stuff. So we'll get on to Ralph's dedication in a minute. But, John, your dedication is to Chris Kurtzman, Kersman, your aunt, who inspired four decades of car-free living. Tell me about your aunt,
2: John. She never even had a driver's license. She uh, she lived most of her life in New York City, in, in Brooklyn. And uh, she. I was closer to, to this my aunt than anyone else in the entire family. But uh, she was... Uh, forever, as long as I remember, an environmentalist, a health food fanatic, uh, very leftist politically and uh, for every conceivable progressive cause. And uh, she hated the very idea of cars and didn't like the noise, the pollution, the danger. and I mean, she just walked or used public transit uh, to get everywhere, which is not difficult in New York City. And uh, she really didn't get out of New York City all that much. So she, I was, I, I admired my aunt so much. And I thought, wow, I, I just, I mean, both the, her interest in the environment and, and all of these same issues, equity and social justice, she was very much into those. And so am I. And we, we just were on the same wavelength. And I mean, I, I was already, uh, even before. I wasn't just copying my ass lifestyle, but I, before I was a professor at Rutgers, I was a, a doctoral student in Boston at MIT. And uh, Boston is also a very, very walkable, transit-friendly city and becoming more and more cycling-friendly, by the way. Um, and it, it's just it, having a car in Boston, just like it is in New York, is just a hassle you don't want to have. It's difficult to park it. It's very expensive. There's very high taxes on owning a car, and, and so forth. As, I mean, I wasn't. I, did, I was a student, so I, I didn't need one anyway. I lived about a mile, mile a half from from MIT, and everything was within walking or, or transit distance. And then when I went to Central New Jersey, this is the really weird thing. Everyone told me, "Oh, when you anyone in New Jersey has to have a car." And I thought, "Oh, oh that's awful. I, I don't want to change my lifestyle. I really like not having a car." So anyway, when I got to, uh, I delivered chose an apartment that was about a mile away from the Rutgers campus within walking distance and also a mile away from the train station. It took me, a, it's a suburban rail coming into New York City and Philadelphia and Princeton and so forth. And uh, it turns out I just didn't need a car. And it's just, that just continued that way. And I just, I, I really forgot how to drive a car. <laughs> I, I still renewed my license because that was used at that time. I think it still is the main form of ID in the United States. Believe it or not, is a driver's license, and so whether you want to have it or not, you, you get it, and that's that's your ID. Um, so then, anyway, the point is, I just it be, it just became part of who I was, and in fact, my nickname was Car Free John. <laughs> Because not only did I not own a car, it wasn't just out of principle, it just became part of my lifestyle and my mentality. And the most, I must tell you, the most traumatic thing that ever happened to me is, <laughs> this is going to sound weird for most people, um, when I retired, uh, I wanted to move to here to Raleigh, North Carolina, because my brother and sister live here. that That's the reason I moved here. And it was I had postponed making this decision and postponing retirement um, because I knew how auto-oriented this part of the country is. You just have to have a car, period. Mm. And I thought, I just don't want to have a car. It's going to ruin my life. And even shopping for a car was traumatic. I don't know nothing about cars. The point is, I did have to buy a car. I do have to use a car, but I use it as little as I can. Um, but it's just, it definitely, it's a very, very different lifestyle. And that for me, I mean, it was a almost traumatic uh, shift from what I was really enjoying as a, uh, I don't, I'm not going to say worry free, but uh, anyway, a lifestyle I, I, I more comfortable with, not having a car. And then here, you know, having a car, for me, going to the gas, sta- to the, the petrol station to get, fill up the gas is a pain in the neck. <laughs> I mean going for the the <laughs> annual inspection of the cars are paid in the neck I mean these things that the parking your cars are paid in the neck
1: mm. it's
2: just uh, it's just not something that I enjoy. There's some people who like cars and I hate them
0: and and Ralph, uh, your dedication are they students are they family? who's Nora Niels tillman Liesel, score and dizian it's it's it, 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 it's it's family, and I think so
3: my my parents are in there because they sort of let me find uh, my work I'm I'm the first in my family to in Germany the schools are, are tiered to go to a gymnasium to go to a, a school that can take you all the way to university and uh, they let me do that and then they let me go to university after that and everybody else in our family was looking at me like why are you not getting a real job why are you why are you doing this and uh, then in the end it, it it took me all the way to to the US to really find find my passion and find the the work I I want to do and um for my family, essentially, because they, they put up with my interest <laughs> in transportation. So whenever we go on, on a trip or on vacation, I'm always looking at at bike lanes, at pedestrian <laughs> the pedestrian crosswalks, transit systems, and I take photos, and they have mm-hmm. to stop, and the kids are not fully aware yet what I'm doing, but <laughs> I always say, well, I'm, I'm taking these pictures for the students and for my work. And then one time I remember we, we looked at a sunset, and my son says to me, Papa, don't you want to take a picture for your students? Wouldn't they be interested in it? So <laughs> the point is that so the work does, doesn't stop just when we are out. There's always something interesting <laughs> to see and to observe and to bring back.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And I want to make one more point with the with the biographies. I think what helps me here in, in the U.S. as a researcher uh, is to be an outsider to be somebody with a different experience or coming from somewhere else because it, it makes it easier for me to to question things or to see to see differences and that comes more more naturally to me for being an outsider or being a a, a foreigner uh, versus somebody who was who was socialized in the same in the same system
2: I, I, Carl I would just like to make the same point but for me it was the reverse that is for me uh, it was living in Germany for those first two years, two full years, two and a half years, in fact. Uh, I just never had lived in an environment where there was such good public transport and walking, and the most surprising of all, such incredible cycling facilities and with literally everyone cycling. And and the, social, the notion of everyone cycling, cycling for everyone, I mean, that is sort of one of my trademarks I guess but that comes from the whole issue of equity and social justice and that is one theme that, that my dissertation advisor Alan Altshuler it was one of his specialties and so he really also inspired me in terms of the focus on equity and social justice uh, as well as sustainable transportation.
0: Okay wonderful thank you and um, so I'm now looking at, at Cycling for Sustainable Cities the book and and of course you're the editor's of the book, you haven't written the whole book. You've written basically well, you've you've written some bits in in the middle, but it, it's mainly the the introduction and then the conclusion. But then you've basically corralled, you know, the world's greatest experts uh, on 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 cycling here. So you've got names that people will be very familiar with. You know, Tim Blumenthal, uh, Bill Nesbitt. They're of course on the advocacy front in the U.S. Fiona Campbell, I know uh, from Australia, um, she's in there. Um, who else we got here? Oh John Parkin, who's been on the show before, Marco de Brammelstru who is cycling uh, professor. Many people will follow him on Twitter. So you've got an absolutely stellar list of uh, contributors. Now, what have those contributors um, done for you and for us the readers, different to city cycling ten years ago. So how has this book been updated with that stellar list of people? in in those 10 years
2: there are a lot of new topics so for example i uh i very much wanted to now that i am i'm 70 years old uh, but now that i am an older adult i thought well we didn't have a chapter on cycling for older adults and i'm still cycling <laughs> and and if you look at the the denmark or germany and the netherlands there's a lot of older adult cycling and i thought we really needed a chapter and I, uh, that uh, chapter i wrote together with four i mean jan was the lead author jan Gerard, but they were all, all four of my co-authors there are public health experts and so we're looking at it from the all of the the physical social uh, and and mental uh health benefits of cycling for older adults and how to encourage more older adults so that's a new chapter the one i thought on china and india was really important and again I can't tell you how I, I tried to get other people to do that chapter and I couldn't get anyone else to lead it. So that's why I led it, but with the three Chinese colleagues and one Indian colleague, and I mean, they are the two most populous countries in the world and there's more mm-hmm. cyclists in China and India even now than there are in the rest of the world. So I thought it was really, really important to look at cycling in China and India. And we have a new chapter um, on Latin America, a cycling a growing part of the world and an important part of the world. And we uh, definitely, Ralph and I are no experts of Latin America. And so we have three Latin American colleagues. They're all originally from Bogota and also cycling experts. And so they wrote that chapter. That was completely new. The e-bike chapter was completely new. Uh, and that's been a big trend recently. And then there have been so many developments in bike sharing I and mean, the, uh, fourth or fifth generation whatever they call these the latest now the the floating bikes uh i mean that was a new development as well i'm leaving out something ralph what chapters have i left oh the advocacy chapter um oh I, there's a story to that and i probably don't want to hear it but uh, we we had I had managed to find someone who was willing to write that chapter on her own and then at the very last moment uh, she just she got sick or whatever it was just she couldn't do it and so I then, I, I know all of those co-authors who are all cycling advocates in, around the world. Mm-hmm. And within 24 or 48 hours, I got in touch with each and every one of them, explained the situation, I'm in a tight bind, and we. I really think it's crucial, absolutely crucial to have a chapter on advocacy because academics can have the best ideas in the world. If you can't implement them, they're worthless. And it's the advocates that really help us implement these things. Um, and, and generate that public support and political support. So anyway, incredibly, I mean, I, I really do know these people, and I've known them. I've known Fiona ever since 2005 when I was on sabbatical in Sydney. And so I just got in touch with people I already knew, and they happened to be executive directors of these organizations. And uh, and they said yes, we'll do it. And so within one month, that advocacy chapter uh, was written. And incredibly, we had three uh, anonymous referees, and two of the three said in the review that their adv- the advocacy chapter was their favorite, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we wrote it in mm-hmm. the least time. Mm-hmm. No what, uh, what, tra- what would you like to say about the differences? We have one one more chapter that was added on, on
3: evaluation by Bert van V, which we didn't have before. So, trying to get at how to decide what what bicycle projects to build. And then a, a big chapter, a big addition and sort of carrying through all the chapters is, is this focus on equity. So we have a whole chapter on, on equity among groups of people who ride bikes, but also in, in bike planning and accessible bike planning. And we, and then I would push a little bit back against your characterization in the beginning that we sort of wrote the back the book ends and then corralled people. Mm. to come in. I think we were much more involved as, as editors. So we, um, we tried to get everyone to have some aspects of equity in the, in the chapters to have a connection to sustainability. We also mm. connected the chapters quite closely and maybe it's a little bit too much, but you should see many references from one chapter to the other while you're reading the book. So we, we, we really were careful to, um, editors and many other edited books don't work that way. I've written chapters for edited books and the editors do very, very little to make a cohesive whole out of the book. Mm. So we didn't only get the great a great group of people, but we also were able to sort of make it a, a book that's that's connected and then that's together. And then one other point is, as you mentioned, that research in bicycling has been skyrocketing over the last 10, 15 years and I saw that firsthand when I was, was chair of the TRB Committee for Bicycle Transport. But so we wanted to have experts in these subfields to write the chapters to really get at the cutting edge of each field. We could have written a book and we would have done a good job at it, but we wouldn't have been able to get for all of these subfields into all of the details and at the cutting edge of each um, alone. And so finding these top experts in their subfields was, was really crucial to make the book a success.
2: We had thought, okay, we'll do this. This it was the MIT Press wanted just a second edition of what we'd done before, and Ralph and I both said no. That would be boring for us, and we want to pr- produce a different book, a substantially different book, which it is. Um, and but we had somehow thought that, well, on this sort of second time around, even though it's a different book, uh, that it wouldn't it wouldn't take as much time as the first. I would just guess, I'm Ralph Kincade. I think it took three times more effort and more time (laughs) this second time around. I mean, again, we added so many new chapters, but we did a lot more coordination and editing. And and there were just more. We have 21 chapters instead of 15 chapters. So um, there was more work there. And also, by the way, some of the we didn't just have the same author. So, for example, the safety chapter is written by a completely different person with a very different perspective. And so uh, some, we did have, and also even the uh, New York um, uh, London Paris chapter, The John Parkin, who uh, was the, the case study author there for, for London, um, he, he was a new author compared to the, the earlier edition. So we did switch out authors. We added new topics. It's, uh, and it took three times more time. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: And it's, it's roughly 50-50, uh, so yeah. male authors and female authors.
2: And there would be even more, the the scheduled, I mean, the scheduled author uh, who had to then drop out because of health reasons for the advocacy chapter was a woman. And then it just, it wasn't our fault, but the heads of these uh, uh, advocacy organizations, with a few exceptions, are men. And so that's why then in that chapter, I think Fiona, let me see who else, Fiona, might be the only woman actually in the as a co-author of that chapter that's very unfortunate but it just i had no choice i had like 24 uh 48 hours to find um replacements for uh, karen who would originally uh, but i'm not sure how much this is
3: indicative for us or the field of research so as mentioned before with the transportation research board there's this big Research organization here, here in the US, and they have committees for all sorts of transportation modes and infrastructures. And the, the Committee for Bicycle Transport is one of the most diverse committees they have because the researchers are really diverse in the field. Um, there are as many. That
0: diverse, diverse in everything? So Not... we're talking. Y- yes, and no. So
3: definitely men and women. Many co- TRB committees have trouble to even find one woman <laughs> in, in their area mm-hmm. of research. And it's also getting more diverse in terms of uh, racial diversity, uh, but it's, it's still lacking compared to society at large. Compared to the other mm-hmm. TRB committees, it's very diverse even in terms of racial composition. And it's also very diverse in terms of ages. There's so many young researchers doing work on, on bicycle transportation, Well, many of the other committees, it's mainly older white men. And So the the, mm-hmm. the field of research in itself. So the researchers are are more diverse, I would say, that than in other transportation areas.
2: By the way, I, one yeah. thing, that the the the, mm. uh, um, the woman that was originally scheduled uh, to be the author of the advocate chat. I'm not going to name her name, but uh, she's African American and, and a woman. And uh, I mean, and, and I mean, and she was well qualified to do this. It's just the health issues came up, and then I was just very disappointed. That I think she might be, I'm not sure about this, the only African American. uh, She would have been the only African American among the authors. And we we certainly tried, but it was a a last-minute disappointment that she couldn't do it. So that's that's
0: something you're going to have to do in the third edition. You're going to have (laughs) to.
3: No, I don't think we really, we have, I, I think it would happen naturally by the, and give us another 10 years and the field will be, will be also much more balanced in, in, in terms of race and ethnicity.
0: Mm. So Ralph, you, you talked there about, um, all of the academic research that's been done, uh, for bicycling and all of the different people and young people who are now getting in, in into, uh, academic research on bicycling. What about walking? How come walking falls between the stores? So you get plenty of people interested in, in motor cars, plenty of people now seemingly interested in now in bicycles. Where's all this fantastic research and advocacy for the world's oldest form of transportation, walking?
3: So there, there is work being done on walking and speaking from a transportation research board perspective, again, that the walking committee... Was also growing and getting much more diverse as the bicycle committee was at the time. But you're right, there wasn't that that level of organization and that level of interest in walking than there was in in bicycling. Um, in terms of advocacy, and John can can attest to that, bicyclists are just very very organized in groups, and they're very good in influencing policy and creating energy around bicycling. One possibility maybe it's just a speculation on my part that bicycling is more of a, a, a an organized or special interest because you can identify the group of bicyclists versus pedestrians like everybody walks and everybody walks a little bit and it's much harder to organize people uh, around that because it's more of a, a common a common trait we we all share and it's hard to get somebody to, to pick that up for everyone while the cyclists Are sort of a a smaller, easier to organize tribal special tribal Ralph. Oh, I'm not sure what tribal. I mean, I I know the word, but I don't know what tribal means. It has a
2: negative connotation to me. If you look at the Netherlands, uh, riding a bike is nothing special.
1: Hmm.
2: Whereas uh, if you look at Australia, riding a bike is something special. Uh, So maybe it's tribal in countries like Australia or the United States, but it's certainly not tribal and. In Denmark or the Netherlands or or, or Germany, um, so, but, you, know, you pose a really interesting question, and I, I, I was I got a walking tour by the head of it was the Greater Sydney Walk Organization, I mean a very small one, and we walked all around much much of the Sydney Harbour. I said, I can't remember his name now. I said, I said, why is it that you know the cyclists are so well organized and there's so much literature and interest in, in cycling? And I don't know of any, well, very few walk organizations. And he said, mm. well, walking is sort of like breathing. <laughs> and, you know, mm. who would think of forming an organization for people who breathe? <laughs> and the very fact that walking is considered so commonplace, it doesn't have any, you don't, you don't uh, brag too much about the shoes that you wear or the clothes you wear while you're walking. Uh, people don't really walk form walking clubs. It's just, it's just not. It's not something that's easy to organize around, whereas cycling, I mean, there's all different groups of cyclists, of course, but uh, you have you know, the bike tours and special bike events and bike days and so forth. But even walk-to-work days, walk-to-school days, it just doesn't have the connotation of bike-to-work, mm. bike-to-school. It's hard to um, explain it, but the other thing, there was a special issue, I think it was two years ago of uh, one of the top journals in transportation. It's Transportation Research A, I think it is. It's on policy. And um uh, it was a, a large issue, and they put out a big request for proposals. Uh And it was just specific on walking and bicycling. And it really, I mean, they, they just did everything to get as many proposals as they could. And yet the, the final issue ended up being, I don't know, maybe 80% on cycling and 20% on walking.
3: I have mm. two more thoughts on this. If if you if you if, if you allow, one is, I think that, that, that something that's that's so common as walking is is harder to, to organize people around. And an example may be that bicycling research in Europe is emerged much later than it emerged here in the U.S. And I remember mm. Kevin Kraycek, who you know as well, when he went to the Netherlands for at, on a sabbatical for a year. When he arrived there, he told them that he studies bicycling at the university, and they looked at him and said, "Really? What, what's next? The professor on vacuuming?" And yeah, brush,
0: <laughs> brushing your teeth studies that kind of thing because it was it was it
3: was so it was so common. And now, of course, they <laughs> have Marco de Premel and they are moving along in this direction as well. But it, it took them longer to recognize it as something special because everybody hmm. bicycled there. And then the other hmm. aspect is that data are hard to get for bike research but it, it's easier to study bike res- bicycling than than walking um mm. getting data on on walkway networks on the quality of sidewalks the location of crosswalks the quality of the crosswalks that's much harder than than getting the data on, on on bicycling even though that's not easy compared to driving so i think that they have an additional additional burden burden there in, in the bike in the walk research as well
0: but there is historical resonance there because whenever you go back i don't know how much you go back into you know deep uh history of this topic but when you look at um uh, traffic statistics in say the 1920s the 1930s this is mainly the us and in the and the uk i'm not too sure about uh, uh germany etc but you always find statistics for cycling and for motoring and and, and the bow chairs and then you never find statistics for, for walking. It's just walkers have always just seemed to be invisible. But if you look at London, you know the majority form of transport in in, in London, in in, in certainly in the city of London, are people on foot.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's just an invisible. You know, it's hard to be a policymaker as well in this area or, or to push policy because yeah, everybody is a is a pedestrian. So why would you have to you know promote
2: that? You're absolutely right. I I know for certain. Um, that in the United States, and by the way, this is also true in Eastern Europe, um, that the travel surveys, that for, they used to be um, it was just the, the U.S. census that we report every, well, every 10 years on the trip to work. Uh, it, but most tra- any travel surveys on the metropolitan level, the city level, did not include walking or cycling at all. They only include motorized transportation, and then when I was looking at the data for many East European countries, they simply, they just don't have the data. They don't include walking and cycling in their in their travel surveys. It's it's very frustrating that somehow the like you said, the invisible modes are not considered real transportation. Now here in the United States, they are, but they didn't used to be. And going back to say the, the first travel surveys done in the nineteen Early nineteen sixties, I think they were in, in various cities. There were these transportation studies, and, and they just did not study walking, and definitely didn't study cycling either. Hmm. It's really only—it's, uh, I mean, cycling has only recently. I was—I don't know exactly when the first articles came up, but yeah, it was—it was not that long ago. It was—I mean, it was certainly not fifty or sixty years ago. It was more like maybe 25, 30 years ago or so that we started to get some research on cycling.
3: Yeah. And, and cycling mm. has been, it's the last point on this, been more successful than than walking in, in getting recognized. Like in the US now they are redoing this MUTCD, the Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices. And mm-hmm. there's a chapter on bicycling and it, it's outdated, but there's no chapter on walking in the whole Uniform Traffic Control Devices mm-hmm. <laughs> book. And they added a chapter now on autonomous vehicles. That's just more interesting Mm -hmm. and something to plan for. But walking that has been around for hundreds of years (laughs) is not even recognized in that.
0: Walking and cycling really shouldn't be, you know, pulling apart. They should be absolutely working together. Now, on that note, um, I would now like to, to cut to an ad break, if you don't mind. So I'll go across to my colleague, David.
1: Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's, it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a longtime loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at JensenUSA.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices and what really sets them apart. Because, of course, there's lots of online retailers out there. But what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who, who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out, Jensen USA. They are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show.
0: Uh, Thanks, David, and we are back. Uh, with uh, Ralph Bula and John, and it's not Poocher, it's Puka, as we, we we found out before. I can't do the the, the glottal stop there. I'm afraid. Um, now we're talking about cycling in uh, for cycling, sorry, not in cycling for sustainable cities, and uh, the new book from MIT uh, by Ralph and John with all those bunch of experts, some of whom we talked about before. Now, um, in the book, in I can't remember what exactly where it is. I marked it somewhere. It talks about how this book was all of the statistics in the book, and it is absolutely super dense with statistics and tables and, and just everything you could possibly need for, for, for fact-checking stuff. But in the book, it does talk about COVID, and it mentions um, coronavirus uh, in passing because, you know, it obviously happened uh, as you are going to, to, to press almost. Do you think you might need perhaps even a whole new book on what's going to be happening to walking and but mainly to cycling uh because of 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 covid so my question is really do you expect the amazing bike boom which we have seen do you expect that to continue uh two three four five years after everybody's been jabbed Yes. (laughs)
2: I don't think it requires a new book, though. That is, we as I think we we sent you the uh, the article we just published in the journal Transport Reviews, which looks at exactly this issue of uh, the COVID impacts on cycling. And, oh, I don't know how many different sources we looked at. Maybe there were 25 or whatever different studies. Incredibly, it's a lot. Of interest in, in this very topic of COVID impacts on cycling.
1: Mm. And
2: um, I mean, what they do show is overall uh, that they've increased. There has been an increase in cycling between 2019, 2020, but with huge variation. Uh, obviously, uh, during lockdowns, when you weren't allowed to travel at all, less cycling as well. But uh, in most countries, most of the increase was in um, recreational cycling, cycling for exercise, mm. cycling just to get outdoors, um, to, have, to sort of see other people with social distancing. Uh, and to, amazingly, uh, the survey that was done in the United States showed that the main motivation for people to ride a bike for the first time or for the first time in a long time uh, was for stress reduction and mental health. And the second most important reason was for physical exercise and, and, uh, and health. Uh, but the, the point is that it, uh, we so we really already have an update in that article. And I think that if MIT Press would let us do it, uh, what we would probably try to do is to add a new chapter or an afterward or something like this in the book to update uh, what has been happening uh due, due to COVID, because I think we covered that fairly well. and I don't think it would be necessary to update every single chapter, but rather just to update. Uh, and, and by the way, even now, it's it's not 100% clear what is definitely going to happen. But we do think, and we give at the end of that article that we just published, five reasons we, we, that there's been huge increases in, in bicycle infrastructure of various kinds during the COVID period. I mean, that's going to be there. So there's going to be better infrastructure for cycling in the in the coming years. We have people, more people who have cycled, who then may have now have taken up the habit of cycling. And there was a study done here in the United States by People for Bikes, and, and they found that it was something like seventy percent of people that they surveyed said they intend to continue cycling after after COVID. Uh, in addition to that, there was this huge shift of uh, big decline in public transport use here in the United States mm-hmm. and I think in Europe as well. And some of those former public transport passengers have indeed shifted to bicycling because there's more social distancing and so forth. Um, what were the other reasons we listed around? Well, anyway, there, there's many uh, reasons why uh, we think that the, the increase uh, in cycling that we've observed in, in two thousand twenty, compared to two thousand nineteen, will indeed continue into well two thousand twenty one, two thousand twenty two, and so forth.
3: And I don't think we need a. We, we, you would need to rewrite the book. You would update the trends due to COVID, but all the the, the, the strategies, the policies, the measures to increase cycling for everyone have have remained the same. That the policies we need to get people on bikes is to provide cycling environments that are free of fast, uh, high volumes of motorized traffic that increase increase the safety and attract people. And it's the same now after or during COVID than it was before. We may have seen accelerated change in implementing these infrastructures and accelerated change in getting people to try out bicycling or rediscover bicycling. Uh, But the the ideas on how to promote cycling that are in the book are, are, are still the same and a lot of the the fate of cycling past covid now will depend on how many new facilities are built and how many of the pop-up bike lanes and the closed streets and all these things we saw will be made permanent or will just be rolled back in washington dc where i am here they're just they're rolling back the sh- the shared streets in neighborhoods they're just taking them out and so we won't have that benefit anymore but in other cities they have made infrastructure is permanent and they are keeping to increase bicycling friendly, friendly measures. So I think the the fate of this bike boom, we really depend on the, the policymakers on the ground and on the infrastructure on the ground to make places more bike friendly.
2: Okay. Carl, I think one, one of the important lessons is, is on implementation that one of the problems we've had, uh, definitely here in the United States, but also in, in Canada and Australia. And that is, uh, the, the near impossibility are very difficult right, to impose any sort of car restrictive measures. Um, that is um, uh, re- restricting th- uh, uh, through traffic from local neighborhoods, reducing speed limits, uh, car-free streets, uh, shared streets, all of those sorts of things, and, and traffic cal- calming neighborhoods in general. And what we found during, and this is in many many cities throughout the world, that all of a sudden things that we thought would be impossible have been possible so the uh, the most stunning thing for me was in new york city i can't remember the exact mileage was over a hundred miles of new york city streets were suddenly made car free exclusively for pedestrians and cyclists from 8 a.m to 8 p.m so that people could get outside and socially distancing, um, uh, socialize with each other and have physical activity. I mean, that would have been unthinkable five or six years, two years ago. And I mean, there are other things, shared streets. I mean, I just We have a listing there. But, I mean, cities all over the world have been experimenting with things that, that, that anti, whatever, I'll put it, the motorist extremist groups <laughs> Have opposed, said, so, no, 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 you can't take away our lanes, and indeed, you can put up pop up bike lanes, and you can exp- you can make cars like streets car free, and expand uh, outdoor restaurant space. All of these things were, as Ralph said, they're not they're not all on uh, not all of them are going to continue, but it was interesting, it's just it's just fascinating how what is possible in a crisis situation and that these measures, which would not have been possible before, in the United States especially, it was just incredible what has been been done.
0: You you write in the book, and this is a direct quote here now, uh, you you, you recommend basically, cities should make driving a car slower, more expensive, and less convenient. So what an awful lot of bicycle advocates, whether they're tribal or not, what they say is what we need to get people... Cycling, are more bike lanes. You, just, you know, forget everything else. Just more bike lanes. That's what will get people cycling. But one of the points you're making in the book, and I, I, I personally, I, I absolutely agree with this, is you've got to do both. You've got to, it's carrot and stick. You've got to yes, provide amenities that are attractive for cycling, but you've also got to hit motorists over the head with a huge, huge, big um, stick. Ralph, would you? Would you? <laughs> Who wrote that particular sentence? Are you are you both in line with that? Are you are you thinking? Yes, you need that stick.
2: Yes, I, I think we both are in line with it. And I was going to just say, I mean, it's a pleasure to be interviewed by such a brilliant journalist <laughs> <laughs> who is in agreement with us. Because I, I I absolutely mean, I think both of us completely agree with you that these these stick measures, which are so difficult um uh, uh, are perhaps the most effective and uh, uh, Ralph and I together with Alan Altschul, my, my former dissertation advisor at MIT, we did a case study of Vienna Austria and um, they had an extraordinarily successful policy over about three decades um they and their two main measures uh, this is not well, they they increase cycling too from I think it was two percent now to nine percent of all trips are by bike in Vienna so they they had a massive increase in in bike facilities, and many of them are protected bike lanes. But then they had a, also a massive they they built a new metro system, the Uban, and they and then it continued to expand it and expand it. And at the same time, one of the most crucial policies was what they call parking management, restricting access uh, by the, the, the um, so many residential neighborhoods. You can't park there unless you're a resident, Uh, in addition to which, even if you're able to park in a particular spot, there's a time limitation, actually one hour or two hours, which completely eliminated long distance commuting by car into the center of Vienna. And so they provided people with the alternative of vastly improved public transport, while at the same time making it very expensive and very difficult to drive your car to the center and at the same time vastly improving their cycling network they ended up reducing the percentage of trips by car from 40 percent i mean what was it ralph i think it was from 40 percent to 20 percent, or something like that it was one of the most dramatic reductions in car mode share that we have seen in any major city it's just incredible but it, that's that truly is that combination of of carrots and sticks.
3: Yeah, and they, they hmm. go together in, in multiple ways. So they, they, they go together to reduce car travel volume and to reduce car travel speed. And at the same time, that itself makes it more attractive to ride a bike. And then they go together in the sense that if you build good alternatives, you can I- implement more policies that restrict car use because you can point drivers to other opportunities. They can ride a subway in the case of, of, of Vienna, or they can ride a bike. So these carrots and sticks go, go together in, in, in many ways. So less driving makes cycling safer and and then better bike infrastructure makes cycling a more viable alternative and you don't need, need to drive. The, the big stick you mentioned and beating drivers with a big stick, I would, would object to that in the sense that if you look historically, we really have made every effort in the last hundred years to accommodate drivers Our cities. We have sort of given over city spaces to storing cars or to moving cars. So Mm -hmm. we have rolled out the red carpet for automobiles. And in the 70s, many European cities started realizing, well, there are many negative side effects. There are fatalities, there's pollution, there's a loss of quality of life. And they started pulling back then already. And now they are pulling back more. So I wouldn't say it's about hitting drivers with a big stick, but it's ending these policies of accommodating cars everywhere in our cities. There don't have to be cars in our city centers. There don't have to be car parking facilities in, in, in streets in our city centers. These are places where people live, where people want to be outside, and we're sort of correcting errors we have made historically. But this doesn't mean we're hitting them with a big stick. We're just taking away a ton of privileges that were given to the car over the last 100 years um they just have mm. gone way too far in accommodating the car in our cities and the cars have destroyed many cities
0: hm mm. rav i'm i'm going to come to you with a question but i i'm going to ask john the, the exact same thing we'll we'll, we'll find out uh uh what, what you both think on this but i asked you before um about who wrote this particular sentence and we didn't get an answer to that that that's not that's not critical on on each particular sentence but my background, my academic background, many, 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 many years ago, as a, as a, just as a graduate student, was in uh, biblical studies. In effect, so I, I majored in, in, in um, Jewish texts, and so I'm in, I was at that time an expert in exegesis, where I analysed texts. So, in effect, the Bible. To work out who were the original authors of those texts. So, if, if you know anything about uh, scriptural research, you know y- you find that there were, there were there were say five or six common authors to say, you know, the, the, some of the major books of the Bible, and you can you can work out stylistically who wrote that, and you get to these 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 common authors. Could somebody now, or in in, in I don't know, some some future time, come to this book, your book? And go oh yeah John wrote that bit oh, oh Ralph wrote that bit or have you have you somehow been able to merge it and you no academic could ever unpick uh, the stuff in there so Ralph can can you unpick um, who who wrote what in in the chapters that you you wrote I think that there are two answers
3: to this one in terms of writing style I think yes you will clearly be able to pick apart what I wrote and what John wrote I'm not a native speaker so my language abilities in a foreign language are clearly more limited than what John has as a, as a native speaker. And it is a very good writer in the native language. But for most of the chapters and things we do together, how we work is we create uh, outlines of, of each chapter before we write it. And we sometimes even down to the level of, of the each paragraph and within each paragraph, what points we want to make and what we want to say. So, in terms of the content or the logic of the content of how we assemble things i don't think you'll be able to to pick it apart so stylistically i think you you will be able to pick apart who wrote what but i think in terms of the the, the logic or the thinking of the chapters you will not be able to pick it apart because we are doing that really absolutely
2: together john same question to you mm-hmm. I agree. In addition to which looking at particular um, sentences, such as the one on the need to uh, come carrots and sticks and so forth, uh, we have written so many articles together and the, and the earlier book and, and, and now this book that it's like, <laughs> it, we are almost of the same mind. We, uh, Ralph, is is more focused maybe on the analytical side, and 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 I'm more focused maybe on, on just getting the the writing style just just right. But just as Ralph said, we. We outline the chapters. We discuss which graphics do we think we want to include. And then as the graphics are being designed, Ralph is the graphics expert. But then, I, no, 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 I don't like this. Oh, no, no, I think when you change this, we need to include this or not include that. So um, it, we really I – mean, when when, and, and when we, we go through drafts, R- Ralph has lots of changes uh, to the text as well. And sometimes I agree. Sometimes I don't. And it goes – and it really went back and forth, back and forth, whether it was the graphics or, or the text. And I think we both provided uh, key inputs to each other. Really, we've worked on so many things together that we're, we're, a, very, we're a team that we complement each other well. So we, we're sort of an integrated team and certain things that I can't do well, for example, graphics and any sort of regression analysis, how did Ralph work on that? And he's also very, very organized and structured. Uh, Whereas my specialty is more, does this make sense? Is this going to be understandable to a broad audience? Um, Is it well-written? Is it clear? Uh, is, Is it convincing? And I'm always, every single sentence I'm writing, I'm asking sort of in my back of my head that question, is it well-written in that sense? Because it's not our purpose to, uh, to just appeal to academics. Our purpose is mm-hmm. to appeal to a broader audience, including policymakers and advocates. I mean, because if you can't, if you can't make a case in a clear, understandable way, clear English, then it's not going to have much impact. And the purpose of writing this book was not to make money. We make them very, very little, for sure, and it wasn't to become famous because of writing the book. It was to have hope that we can have an impact on policy, and that advocates, policymakers, planners, engineers can use this book to improve cycling conditions um, uh, around the world. And we've talked about the impact
0: of coronavirus on on bicycling levels in the next ten years, say. But what about might you even need a a paper or a chapter or an update to your book on the the Buttigieg factor? So, Mayor Pete, how how optimistic should we be that the very warm words in we hear saying warm words about cycling will come through to both actual policy and actual money and then actuality on the ground? He
2: can encourage. I mean, there's only so much discretion he has as secretary of transportation and what money gets allocated for what purposes is going to be determined by Congress. And, uh, for example, what what I see, and these are all proposals that hasn't been passed yet, uh, a huge amount, I can't remember, $170 billion or something like that to promote electric cars. Uh, and and lots of money for, for this, that, and and, uh, I don't know how many billions, hundreds of billions for approving roadways. And I I really, I didn't see any line item there for walking and cycling. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but however, the New York times reported it, it, it didn't show up. And I'm thinking, well, the whole point of this is what, what he, a secretary of transportation can do. I mean, he, he has influence. He can encourage, uh, people in his department to do whatever they can to promote cycling to and in, in, in walking as well and, and to enable programs to, they can issue well, they directives, departmental directives uh, or policy guidelines, but the funding itself is really determined by Congress. There is some discretion funding where the secretary of transportation does have discretion. So he he has his heart in the right place. I mean, the words are the right place. Um, but I am not aware that Pete Buttigieg uh, cycled to work on a regular basis, um, so I'm really just not sure. I think I think it depends really on what Congress does, and then also uh, much of those much of the funding gets channeled to the states, and the states ultimately make some of the decisions. There's a lot of earmarking as well, but the states will make many of the decisions, and, and many of the states are not necessarily as pro bike as uh, we would like them to be. So Ralph
0: John isn't isn't so sure. H- how about you? So I would also say that uh, for your question that it,
3: it would be premature to write a chapter about the buddy judge factor. We'll have to wait and see if there is a buddy judge factor. As you as you said uh, there are words that point in the right direction. The background is encouraging that we have a a, a transport secretary who, who was a mayor and who knows the urban uh, transport needs and knows urban transportation, so that there, there could be good good things to come. But in the end, there will be many many constraints with federal legislation with finding federal funding. I think they'll be able to move the needle more towards more bike friendly, um, and they can help the local level. But a lot will also depend in the end on on the willingness of local governments to make these changes and and implement these changes and change their, their transport systems to be more friendly towards uh, bicycling and, and, and walking. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, in the past, if you look at past U.S. transport legislation, where bicycling and walking received more money, the, the trend had always been towards um, growing the pie. So walking and cycling got money or got more money, but there was even more money for driving and more money for transit. And that made everybody happy because you didn't have to make a compromise. We don't seem to be so so lucky financially these days. So we'll have to see what happens when politicians actually have to make these trade-offs and take money away from one mode and shift it to the other. And as John said, there's a lot of excitement around electric vehicles, about autonomous vehicles. There's going to, going to be money put into into those areas as well. And the transport secretary alone cannot cannot shift these... These priorities. So I'm, I'm See, a, a,
0: AOC. Sorry, sorry. I'm kind of interrupting because it just came into my head. But AOC has been you know, championing electric cars in just the last day or so, and you know she's seen to be a very leftist, a very progressive um, uh, member of Congress. And yet here she is plugging, for want of a better word, electric cars, which we know is not the future because of all sorts of different issues. But the most progressive members of Congress are plugging just the same old thing. It's just a car. But progressiveness does not always
3: translate into being pro-sustainable transportation. I mean, during the when Joe Biden was the vice president and and the 2008 financial crisis, a lot of the the money went into the car industry. And there were these cash for clunkers programs to help sell new cars because the interest was in... uh, um, saving uh, workplaces in the car industry. And they are also a big constituent of of progressive um, politicians. So progressive politicians does not always mean sustainable transport. It sometimes sometimes means that.
0: AOC has pretty much shown she's not really that much of a radical at all. That's right. I mean, people, are painter is radical. And she's like, not radical. That is absolutely what everybody in America has been saying for the past 100 years. I agree. Come on, get with, get with the program. So let, let me just, I am very, very aware that we're now 70 minutes into recording. And I said we'd be done within the hour. So I'm, I'm aware of that. But very, very quickly, um, is cycling left wing or right wing? Ralph. I don't think
3: cycling would have to be left or right wing. For example, John mentioned the city of Münster in Germany, which is a forty percent bike share. The city of Münster, with one exception, for four years they had a social democrat. Other than that, they always had a conservative mayor in Münster, and it's a as as politically a city comes, it's a conservative German city. So bicycling can be can thrive in a conservative. Uh, no, environment. That,
0: that's that's unfair but, because you're talking about Europe, of course. I shall rephrase the question. (laughs) In America, and and (laughs) by extension in the UK, is cycling left-wing or right-wing? Forget Europe.
3: Um, I would still maintain that cycling itself doesn't have to be right or or, or left-wing, but it is spun very often as a left and right-wing issue. And uh, it's spun as a left-wing issue uh, for promoting cycling or being environmentally friendly. But I, I do not think that protecting the environment, getting physical activity and all of these things have to be um, leftist leftist issues. but that's the way that's the way it's, it's spun. Um, I remember a, a presentation by a, a city planner from the city of Freiburg who was in, uh, in, in New York City and he recommended bus only lanes be implemented on certain avenues and he was sort of run out of town as a left-wing socialist but it's only about moving people efficiently uh down a roadway without traffic congestion so many of these things get get caught up in in the politics in the politics of the day but i don't think they have to be they have to be polit- political necessarily i mean
0: fascist states were very famous for even though it wasn't isn't true you know their trains running on time so <laughs> you can be um ultra ultra right wing and, and and want transportation to work
2: yeah I'd like to give you a, a concern, uh, can I put it, a southern view here. So I'm in North Carolina, unfortunately, a state that uh, voted for Trump both times, incredibly. And uh, uh, my favorite bike shop, uh, I've, I've gone there uh, constantly, have bike repairs to do. And uh, the election where Trump got elected, uh, I was absolutely appalled. There was this big sign on his front door Trump Pence. And I'm thinking, And I thought bicyclists were progressive. And then I got to talking to more and more cyclists that I met out on the Greenway here in Raleigh, and many of them (laughs) were pro Trump. I I didn't yell and scream at them. I thought, okay, we'll just not discuss politics. But I was amazed at how many cyclists uh, I found out were pro Trump and were Republican and yet very pro cycling so at least here in North Carolina being pro cycling has nothing whatsoever to do be with being leftist or rightist I mean, it just doesn't
0: mm. okay
3: yeah, and then the, the one comment you made sort of as a as a joke but with the fascist systems and transport and um, in, in Germany for example the fascists tried to to brand themselves as those who created the autobahns and all that but if you really look at the history The autobahns they built, they were planned in Mm. the 1920s, way before they came to power. There were even uh, autobahn stretches that were built. And then the fascists downgraded them to local roads to be the ones to open the first autobahns. So I I don't think this necessarily has to have a political uh, orientation dimension to it.
0: Tell me about where people can get this book from maybe they've had city cycling and now they should get cycling for sustainable cities. So where can people get this from first of all? And then secondly, how can people find out more about you guys? So John, you tell us where we can get the book from and then uh, you tell us where people find information from and then uh,
2: Ralph can take over. Okay. Uh, The book is uh, available at virtually every single Uh, online bookseller that I'm aware of. I'm not sure if it's in all that many bookstores, but it's definitely Amazon. There is every conceivable. And I mean, there's dozens and dozens of online uh, sites where the book can be ordered. Uh, It costs $30 for an academic, you know, big, big, dense, dense But That's not bad. 30 30 bucks is pretty good. It's pretty good for giving it. It's almost 500 pages long. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, that's, mm. that's a bargain, and, and... I'd say, for, for 30, $30 or, I guess, about 20 pounds or 21 pounds, something like that mm. in the UK. So, John, where, where can people find out about you? Uh, all they have to do is put in my name into Google. They'll find out everything they need. You're not really on social media. I don't do social media. I'm so old-fashioned. I, ju- I don't do Facebook <laughs> or Twitter or anything like that. I don't. Uh, but um, if they put my that's name... That's something in my... common with Trump, then. No. <laughs> Well, you know, I must I must tell you that I have friends roughly my age and they had been doing social media. And then they said they found they were wasting so much of their time just responding to to tweets or looking at Facebook postings and this, that and the other. They said they just they said, forget it. You know, I'm just not doing this. It's just a waste of my time. But with me, it's just that I've never gotten into it in the first place. It's just not my thing. And
0: Ralph, we, we, we now know where the book is from. We now, John, isn't on um, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, um, uh, just like uh, his big fan, um, um, President, ex-President Trump. So Ralph, how about you? Where, where can people find out about you? I'm, I'm on Twitter,
3: and uh, it's at Bueller underscore Ralph. I also have my own uh, WordPress website. It's, called, it's Ralphbu at, uh, RalphBU.wordpress.com, RalphBU.wordpress.com and uh, i'm on i'm on linkedin as well um, not on not on instagram and any of these these other things but that's my that's my social
2: media i would like to clarify one thing lest anyone misunderstand i hate trump even more than cars and that's a lot <laughs> you cannot possibly imagine he he, hit, he made the past four years hell for me i mean i can't tell you how much sleep i lost i mean oh oh well let's not go there
0: <laughs> <laughs> wonderful well that, that's bookended the show wonderfully because that's that's how we came in you said you hate cars and now you say yeah you hate cars but you hate trump even more uh, wonderful thank you very much to both of you for for being on today's show Thanks to Ralph Bula and John Puka there. And thanks to you for listening to the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Show notes and more can be found at the-spokesman.com. The next show will be released tomorrow, 9th of May. And it's a chat with Chris and Melissa Bruntlett, who'll be telling me about their soon-to-be-published book, Curbing Traffic, The Human Case for Fewer Cars in Our Cities. But meanwhile, get out there and ride.